It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast episode 156, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. After starting out in 2008 on a homestead in the country that grew to a market and livestock farm on several different parcels, my guest Stephen Beltram and his wife, Becca Nestler, moved Balsam Gardens to two large parcels right in the city of Asheville, North Carolina. They now farm on 30 acres of certified organic ground, selling their produce to wholesale distributors. Stephen digs into how he has developed a large, efficient farm without any infrastructure. At Balsam Gardens, the crew field packs all of the crops. And Stephen explains how they do this in a way that has helped them pass their gaps audit while maintaining good quality. We also discuss Balsam Gardens' plastic culture system, including how they manage weeds between the plastic-covered beds. And Stephen shares how they've worked to structure their crops and their labor pool to maximize their efficiency. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company. Founded by organic crop growing professionals, committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by High Mowing's Organic Seeds, the first independently owned farm-based seed company proudly serving professional organic farmers with a full line of 100% certified organic and non-GMO project verified vegetable herb, flower, and cover crop seeds. Highmowingseeds.com slash farmer to farmer. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. Stephen Beltram, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Really happy that you could join us today. I'd like to start off, as we usually do, by having you tell us about your farm, Balsam Gardens, where you guys are located, how much you're farming, how you guys are selling it. Okay, so we're located in Asheville, North Carolina, which is a mountainous area. It's in the western part of the state. So that puts us in, well, Zone 6A, they've been, they've been saying we're probably nudging up now, um, although this winter's been cold. Um, but we actually started the farm in 2000 seven or eight, uh, 2008, really, I guess, when we first started going to farmer's market, about 45 minutes west of Asheville, we bought a, uh, an old homestead out there, you know, 1800s kind of house and three acres. So we started on, on a 16th of an acre in the front yard and just started going to the small town local farmer's market. And um, here about 10 years later, we've moved to Asheville. So now we're actually fully in the city limits of Asheville, um, but we're farming on about 30 acres of certified organic land, and, uh, and we're wholesaling everything, and at this point, it's all vegetables, so we're not doing any animals, although we've done that quite a bit in the past. 30 acres of organic produce in the city, that's not your typical urban farming setup. Right, yeah, it's pretty unique. Um, it's kind of a, you know, it's uh, it's kind of weird the way it worked out. We we wanted more land and we had to move into the city and leave the country to get it. Um, so like I said, we're in the mountains. So we have some some couple. We're on two different watersheds, but the way it works out is we're in those floodplain riparian areas on the sides of, uh, in one case, a river, and on the other on the other field, a pretty large creek. So. Um, we're farming in land that's not developable, and so that's how that's how we ended up with it. One of the properties we purchased 
in uh, 2014, and that was really the impetus for us to move. Um, it's actually 34 acres, but it, I think I can tell about 20. And, um, and the other property is actually owned by the city of Asheville, and we lease it from them. And, um, and I guess that's about 10 acres of tillable land. So that's how that kind of worked out. And then you said that you're selling all of your produce wholesale. What kinds of markets are you selling your produce into? So the thing that we've done the past three years is there's a, well, there's a company um, in a town right next to Asheville um, called New Sprout Organic Farms. And they started out farming, um, I guess, around the same time we did. But they, they've transitioned over to being a, just focusing on distribution and, um, and I guess, commingling products and stuff like that. So, so we've partnered with them the past three years since we moved. And um, everything has gone through their warehouse. And then they handle the marketing end of it. So they're selling it to, you know, the major grocery stores. Um, and that's the way we've, we've managed to sell produce because we don't have any infrastructure on our farm. It's just floodplain land at this point. So we've got no pack shed. We don't even have electricity or potable water. So, um, so that partnership has really um, made it so that we can, we can sell our stuff. And then, this year we're we're taking on um, we're going to be partnering with a couple other companies um, doing a similar thing just so that we have a little bit of of diversification in our in our marketing strategy. But um, but that's the way we've managed to do that. So when you say you don't have any infrastructure on your farm, no potable water, how are you getting your crops clean enough to go to market? How does that even work? So the way that works is that we field pack everything. Everything that we're growing right now is uh, is on plastic, so we're doing plastic culture for everything. So that helps keep things pretty clean. And then we field pack all the produce. So if we're bunching kale, you know the way that works is our crews out there harvesting kale. They're piling the bunches in the middles on the clean plastic between the you know we've got two rows of kale. So they're they're piling the bunches in the middles. And then someone else is coming through and putting that stuff directly into a wax box. And then when it goes back to our buyer's warehouse, it runs through a, a really simple hydro cool line, which is just like a conveyor belt with some water sprayers on top. And then it gets iced. So, so we're not really washing anything at all. Does that affect the selection of crops that you're growing? It does. So, you know, we're not, we're not doing really any root vegetables. We're going to do some this year for um, a small uh, local company that we used to work with a lot in the past. They're good friends and they do, they do grocery home delivery. So we're going to grow some carrots and beets and stuff for them. And they're actually going to wash them themselves. But yeah, for the, for the larger wholesale market, we, we focus on things that that are growing above ground. So we're focused on leafy greens and lettuce, you know, like head lettuces. We're not doing, you know, like baby leaf lettuce that you got to wash three times or anything. And then fruiting crops. And, you know, if we're picking squash or tomatoes or something like that, and they, they have a little bit of, you know, we try to wash them as little as possible, but if they're a little bit dirty, then we just, we just wipe them off with paper towels before we put them in the box. It's such a different approach than well, then specifically what we took on our farm, which 
was, you know, everything got washed and everything left the farm extremely, extremely clean. And so it's really interesting to me. And I know that when we experimented with field packing, it was a, it was a complete disaster. Yeah. You know I mean? We, when we started our farm, um, you know, I did the same thing. Like I said, it, we were at a, at our three acre homestead site. Uh, we had a little garage off the side, you know, and I, I put in this three hole sink and the, uh, the cool bot walk-in cooler and, and, um, and all that. And we, you know, we ended up with, I don't know, like five locations around there, but everything came back there and got washed like you're saying. But, um, but we really had to figure out a new, a different way of doing it because we just, we just don't have any way to do that on our farm the way it is right now. Yeah. And even in the, even on the farm that we purchased, like it's the city has some flood ordinances that make it highly restricted for building anything at all. And so we just haven't been able to work out the kinks of putting in any sort of infrastructure at this point. Now, when you're harvesting those crops out in the field and then moving them to the distributor, are you using a refrigerated truck or anything like that to start removing the field heat? Or is it just a, you know, are are you guys just packing stuff up and, and really relying on your wholesale distributor to cool stuff down for you? Yeah, we have a 20 foot, um, refrigerated truck. Um, and, and that's ours now. Um, when we first started, actually they owned the truck and they came to our field and got the stuff and took it back. Um, now the way we do it is that, uh, we own the truck and we, it's refrigerated and we haul the stuff to their warehouse. And then our staff handles all the post-harvest handling also in their warehouse. So yeah, we get a little bit of field heat off, but you know, a lot of it is also just time management. I mean, we, we can't harvest lettuce past, you know, usually 10 AM. Um, we usually try to get out of crops like kale, even by lunch. And so that also affects our crop selection, you know, uh, in the sense that uh, I try to have some fruiting crops or something like something like squash that we can pick in the afternoon to keep my crew going past noon working. My crew likes to work from about 6 a.m. till 3.30. So uh, we try to have some afternoon jobs, you know, by, by crop selection in that way. Again, to kind of just keep talking about the, you know, that harvest and the post-harvest handling aspect of it. Have you gone through a gaps audit? Has that been a requirement of, of New Sprout and these other distributors that you're working with? Yep. We're gap certified. Um, started out just UA, USDA GIP gap or whatever they call it. And um, now, now we're, last year we went to Harmonize and next year it looks like we probably, because we're going to be working with a, a new buyer that requires global or GFSI equivalent anyway. So we might even be doing a Primus audit. So, yep, we're doing, we're doing the gap thing for sure. And so I think about, again, you said you guys don't have any potable water on the farm. How are you handling things like, I think about those most fundamental requirements like hand washing and bathroom sanitation. How are you guys managing that on your farm? So we have, we use um, portable toilets and we contract with a local company to do that, just like you would on a construction site or whatever. So that part, that part's just handled by them. Um, And then the hand washing stations, you know, we just use those, those blue water jugs, you know, that have the, you lay them on their side and, and you can turn the, turn the handle open and the water flows and then you can turn it back and it turns off. Yep. 
so we just haul in potable water for for those for that re for you know for hand washing and for drinking water and for washing uh, you know for cleaning tools and stuff um and then i use those uh i use those ibc totes to haul in water for spraying you say ibc totes that's the big that those are those big pallet sized plastic water totes right you got it. They hold like 275 gallons. And, um, you know, I fill those up at a well that we have access to down the road. We, so one of the fields that we're at now that we're actually giving up this year has a well nearby. Um, the same owners that we lease the field from own the well. So they've been letting us use that water for spraying. So I haul that in. Um, or one of my irrigation pumps that I'm pumping out of the river with has a, a chlorinator on it. So I can use that for spraying as well. Um, but that's, that's the way we handle that. Yeah. Cause we, I, we need to have potable water for spraying as well. And of course you have to have the potable water for hand washing because obviously you don't want to be washing your hands in that's contaminated in any way, shape or form. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, and then our harvest buckets and stuff, we wash them back at our buyer's warehouse the way we've been doing that. Yeah. So I, the new farm that we're moving into, I've been toying with the idea of putting in a water meter. We could do it, but uh, we'll see. We'll see where we go with that. Yeah. That's going to be, I mean, interesting to think about that living in the city. You know, I, my experience with farming is, has almost all been rural and being able to make those decisions about, you know, I'm going to drill a well or whatever without it really having to pay any consideration to zoning laws or things like that. But I guess farming in Asheville, you've actually, you don't have options like that. Yeah, we could drill a well and, you know, but that would, that would cost more than, um, putting in a water meter right now. So I don't know it, right. you know, the, a well would probably cost 8,000 and putting in a water meter with one of those frost free hydrants, I think would cost a little over three. So, and because we have, because we're irrigating out of surface water, you know, it's not like we need volume of water. It's, it's really just for hand washing and drinking. I do a lot of work in the area of food safety and, and education for farmers around that. And I know that this hand washing requirement is something. So I mean, two things about it. First, I think it's the most important thing that you can do on the farm in terms of actually having an impact on food safety, right? Because people's hands touch everything, um, good, bad, and indifferent. And and so I'm I'm interested in in exactly what kind of a setup you've got. So you said you've got like a blue jug. It's got a little it's got a little twisty knob on it so that you can you can open up the water so the water's flowing over somebody's hands. And what else what else do you have with that setup? Because obviously just rinsing your hands and having that water drain on the drain out into the field is not sufficient. Yeah, okay. So it's the things that we have right now, it's like a little stand. Um, if you can picture four two by fours with a little plywood top on it, and then on top of that, there's there's a couple two board two by fours sticking up with um, I guess what was probably a twenty gallon um, blue plastic barrel cut in half, so it's kind of got like a little lid on top of it, and then so the water jug sits on that platform, and then there's a soap dispenser mounted. Um, on the front of the, of the platform as well. And it's, you know, just one of those plastic ones that you put the, you know, flexible plastic soap bags in and you push it and the 
soap comes out. Right. Um, right. And then uh, underneath that, it's just, a, you know, it's like a piece of half inch uh, pipe held on with a couple hose clamps, and, you know, and that holds some paper towels. And, um, and then there's a trash can next to it. And, and we keep those things, you know, they're not in the field. So all of our fields are kind of, I guess, small enough or broken up enough that there's always some area, um, like we, we set up a designated break area and those things are, you know, always 15 or 20 or 30 feet from any actual, well, probably more like 30 feet from any actual production areas, usually on the other side of a farm road or something like that. And, um, so we don't have those things, you know, out in the middle of the field. Right. And then, and then we have a bucket, you know, underneath that we can collect the water from. And we just, I don't know if you're really supposed to do this, but we just dump it, you know, like make sure we're dumping it far away from the break area and the, in the production area in the woods or whatever. And that's that in a place where people aren't going to be walking through and getting that, getting that water on their boots and then tracking it into the field. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. I just think I, it's interesting how you've made this all work in a, in a setup that doesn't include a lot of infrastructure, right? I mean, I think it's, that's pretty elegant that you've got a, you, you've got something that's satisfying the auditors and is clearly going to meet any of the requirements for the for the produce safety rule when that's coming into effect for you guys. And that's I don't know, not not just yeah. So I just think that's nice and smooth and I, I like really hearing simple, about it. You know? Yeah, and and because we're only because we're field operations only, um, you know, our gap audit is probably a lot simpler than someone who's trying to manage a, a warehouse packing facility as well. You know that the auditors kind of look at those two things as separate operations, which, you know, they, they are in our case. Right. And so, um, yeah. So the field operations requirements are, well, they're pretty straightforward. Yeah. But, you know, it's wash your hands. Um, don't, you know, don't, don't, uh, drop your boxes and puddles, you know, stuff like that. How long have you guys been going through, the gaps auditing process. We started. Uh, we did our first uh, gap audit in 2015. So that and that was when we moved our farm. Okay. So um, 2015, we we scaled up quite a bit and we switched over to. Um, well, we'd already been wholesaling a lot, but we switched over to the more commercial side of wholesaling. You know, larger grocery stores and stuff right. um, through this distributor we're talking about, and um, and that's when we started it on the gaps. And uh, we, we were, we weren't actually certified organic, uh, before then either. We were just, um, we were just farming organically. Um, but since all of our markets were farmer's market and CSA and local restaurants and small local grocers that, you know, we weren't required to have all these certifications for those kind of buyers. Right. But once you start getting further away on the distribution chain, you really do have to have that because that's the only way that that a consumer can have assurance that you're doing the practices that they think that you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the only way to sell it as organic and and get you know the the price that you need to farm this way. And then the food safety stuff is just it's been like a tidal wave over the past few years where buyers are really requiring it in a big way around here and. Um, 
and the buyers themselves are getting stricter and stricter. I mean, uh, we've had some buyers ask us to get more water tests than we normally do and stuff like that. So we'll see where it all goes. I think it's going to be one of the interesting effects as a produce safety rule comes into effect is they more and more buyers, even for growers who aren't subject to the rule, are probably going to be pushing for compliance with the rule, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that, it, you know, you're not going to get into a, a chain grocery store uh, without some sort of food safety certification, you know, at all in the near future, if not already now. What kind of changes did you have to make in your operation? And I think it's interesting, especially because you do just have the field side of things. What kind of changes did you have to make to make that change to, I guess, both certified organic and on the, to get the USDA gaps audit and pass that? A lot changed when we moved. So, but how much really changed, you know, specific to, to the organic certification, I'd say um, not much changed on our production methodologies, but just specific for that. Um, I definitely started taking record, you know, field record keeping seriously. Um, I'd been pretty lackadaisical about that in the past, but, you know, as far as, uh, you know, the sort of our approach to farming and any sort of materials and stuff that we use, I w I'd say that nothing on that end changed for organic certification. Um, for gap certification, again, I'd say the biggest thing that changed is the record keeping. We have to keep all kinds of log books and things that um, in the past I'd, I didn't do any of that. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to think about what else might have changed specific for that. And, um, but just a lot changed when we moved the farm. So we started um, being able to keep, make sure that the, we really we separated our animal we kept we don't have an animal operation now but we did have one for the first couple of years um after we moved to Asheville we've made sure to keep that a lot more separate well let's let's talk about making that change cuz you started farming in 2008 and then you make this move to Asheville in 2013 right um 15's the first year we farmed in Asheville okay i mean and and it and it seems like, from what you've said, that you really went from being a, a rural farm doing direct marketing to consumers to making this transition to being an, an urban farm on a larger scale, marketing your product primarily to wholesale distributors. Can you talk a little bit about how, that, how, how and why that arc happened at Balsam Gardens? So when we were in in Balsam, which is where the farm started. That's the rural area we're talking about. You know, we were going to farmer's markets. There was two towns nearby. So we were going to two farmer's markets, um, really three a week, but, you know, two, two locations, um, as well as doing the CSA and um, selling to restaurants and all that. And, and at a certain point, we just kind of, we just kind of maxed out our local sales potential. So, you know, our, our farmer's market after a year or two plateaued. Um, let's tell the story like this. In 2008 and nine, it was just a part-time gig for me uh, and my wife. So 
you know, I was doing construction full time and we had, you know, our market garden was like a 16th of an acre. So our first farmer's market, you know, we sold some soil blocks in April or whatever, um, made 30 bucks and thought that was awesome. So, so that's kind of where we started with it. And we just kept going to those markets. In 2010 is the first year that I started farming, you know, full time during the season. So um, I was still doing construction in the winter and uh, my wife, Becca, had a job at that time as well. Um, and so 2008 and nine, you know, we, I say we, you know, we started the farm for sure, but, you know, we only sold like $1,300 worth of stuff. So it was a, it was a small enterprise mostly a home garden that we were selling excess from 2010, the construction industry really fell apart. So, so that's why I decided to, you know, make the garden a little bit bigger and actually try farming full time. It, it was always kind of a dream, uh, but I didn't think it was possible to make a living this way. So, so that was the impetus to try it, you know, having, having no work for the first time ever in construction. And then we just kept getting bigger. So, you know, 2010, we had a half acre and we had vegetables and I started raising some broiler chickens and stuff. And 2011, I don't know, we leased some more land from a neighbor and we raised more chickens and started raising turkeys and um, some pigs and made our gardens bigger. And so our last year at that location was 2014 and we were up to, we were up to four locations with about five acres of vegetables. And we were raising, I don't know, maybe, maybe 1200 broilers a year on pasture and um, a few hundred turkeys and, you know, 20 or 30 pigs. And I'd say that the biggest thing that changed is when we found this land, you know, I kept, we kept wanting more land. Uh, I wanted to expand the operation a little bit. But we were having a hard time collecting like any nice, decent sized tracks where we were at. A lot of it had to do with topography. There just isn't a lot of um, large flat pieces of ground, uh, especially in the county that we were in at the time. And a lot of that is like old family land. You know, people, they might be doing nothing but haying on it, but they don't, they don't want anything to change. You know, they... (laughs) <laughs> they want it just the way it is. So we we spent about a year and a half in communication with the seller of the land that we purchased in Asheville, uh, kind of negotiating with her. And uh, we had one failed attempt to buy it as soon as we found it. And then uh, about a year and a half later, we finally purchased it. So that that's really what drove us to move was finding, you know, 34 acres of, of bottom ground all in one contiguous location. Um, okay. I was kind of tired of farming on five different places. I wanted to farm in one place. Um, and that's not what ended up happening. Now we're farming in multiple locations again, but, um, that's, hard <laughs> that's just kind of what happened. Yeah. And, and why the marketing change? What, what prompted you to go from doing those kind of direct consumer sales to doing selling to wholesale distributors. That's a pretty big change. Yeah. So, um, even at our previous locations, the side of our business, I'd say, uh, you know, 
the last maybe two years that we were in that location and we were still doing this DSA and the farmer's markets and, and all that, the only part of our operation that the only part of our marketing side of our business that was actually expanding was um, our local, I mean, it was still direct sales to, you know, local companies, but, but our wholesale side of it. So like the local grocers and, and um, home delivery service and all that kind of stuff. That was the only side um, where we, we could get any growth in sales. Like we just couldn't, we couldn't get more CSA members. Um, in fact, our CSA started declining in membership. Um, and the farmer's market sort of plateaued. So, so we were already accustomed to doing, you know, some wholesale. And then the switch to the more, um, you know, bigger commercial type wholesale really had, had to do with the fact that we didn't have a packing storage facility. So, when we set up this um, partnership with uh, with New Sprout, it you know it it closed that that link for us where we you know we were trying to figure out well how without any buildings or storage or potable water how are we going to sell our stuff and I couldn't even really figure out how to put together a CSA that way you know so yeah that I'd say that was our biggest motivator to go that direction. But making that sort of a change has a pretty big impact on your economics. I mean, it, you're really changing the prices that you're getting for the product when you go from selling to direct to consumer, even changing from selling to restaurants and local stores to selling to a wholesale distributor. Did you guys really sit down and pencil that out as part of the decision-making process? Yeah, we knew that it had, the numbers had to work. Um, our buyer who's acting as our marketing agent, they're taking a revenue split. So, so we are giving up some money in that way. Um, but you know, the, the price point that you can get from retailers in our area for organic produce is, is actually, you know, the same or, or even higher than you can often get from restaurants and stuff. You know, in our area, the restaurants, that industry isn't really paying much of a premium. Um, and so, so, so yeah, some of the prices are going to be lower, but the volume is so much more instead of delivering, you know, two cases of, of something, you know, we want to deliver 150 cases of that same thing in a day, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, we had to, you know, the numbers have to work. Um, but I think, I think that the increased efficiency of growing less things um, on a larger scale has, has really worked out, has worked out to make it so that those lower prices, you know, are, are fine. Where have you gotten those efficiencies? Is that just from not having to train a crew on 40 different crops? Yeah, that's, that's definitely part of it. Um, you know, it's the other thing is that, you know, we're paying our crew now by the hour, whereas, uh, previously we, we were, we were doing the intern type program. So we were housing people and, and all that kind of stuff and trying to provide, um, you know, we were providing more than just a job, but, but our, our payroll numbers were a lot lower, but you know, we like most, most everybody in the business, we still weren't really making very much money um, in that way. And so, yeah, I think that the efficiencies of, 
of getting that volume done, not having the training is part of it. And part of it is, you know, when you, when you go out there and you harvest kale for four hours straight, you can get a lot more done, you know, per minute than if, than if you're switching tasks, you know, 18 times in a four hour period. So I think that's, I think that's most of where the efficiency comes in. And then also being on a larger scale, you know, we've gotten into a lot more mechanization. So that has made a big difference as well. When you say you've gotten into more mechanization, what does that look like? Well, we're doing everything with, you know, four wheel tractors now, you know, when we started, I had a rototiller and then, you know, I went to the walk behind Grillo kind of thing. Um, and now we're doing things with, with tractors, you know, our, um, we switched everything over to plastic culture. So our weed management and our watering is a lot more labor efficient. We're taking wagons through the field when we're harvesting. So we're moving the product out of the field on, on shaded wagons. Um, and, you know, so we're moving, you know, we can put like 200 cases on a wagon and move it all out of the field at once and load it on the truck. So, you know, our, our weed management is basically just like cultivating the middles between the plastic. Uh, maybe we have to hand weed the holes like one time, but we're not, you know, my crew's not out there hoeing all day. Um, right. That probably makes them happy. That makes them happy. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> ideally they're, ideally they plant and harvest and that, you know, that's what the crew does. And we do a minimal weeding. Um, yeah, we're spraying with a tractor, you know, a Jacto cannon sprayer, as opposed to, you know, I used to spray with pump backpack sprayers. So you can imagine how much time that would take to cover any ground. So, yeah, that's what I mean by mechanization. Now, are you doing any mechanical harvesting of crops? We are not. Everything is harvested by hand. Which, given the crops that you mentioned, I, I was assuming that that was the case. Are you using anything like a like a vegveyor conveyor system or anything like that to get stuff out of the field? Nope, I don't have anything like that. It's something I've thought about before. Um, I don't know how how hard it would be to move that thing around uh, the city. Oh yeah, I guess there is that, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so everything is just like I said. We we hand harvest it and we put it in boxes and then we we hand the boxes up to the wagon and, and that keeps them in the shade too, you know? Uh, so that's an important aspect of that wagon system, but tell me about the cover, but wagon. it's all handled by hand. Tell me about that covered wagon. What does that look like? Cause that seems like, again, for you guys, anything that you can do to keep from adding heat after you've harvested has got to be just critical because you don't have the cooling facilities right there on the farm. Yep, exactly. I mean, it's incredible the way that, you know, a box of kale that was, you know, boxed up at, uh, you know, 730 in the morning at 11 o'clock is still cold on the inside if you stick your finger in there, if you, if you can keep the thing in the shade. Um, so what we do is we've got, uh, we've got hay wagons. I've got a couple of them. I wanted each each location where we're harvesting, I keep one there. And I've gone through several iterations of how to do shade structures on it. Uh, starting with wood and, and um, like building a wooden roof over it with a tarp 
Um, and what I've switched to now that I like the best is, if I can describe it, I'm standing right next to it. Now, I drilled holes in it with a hole saw um, in, the, in the side. And then I, I put a, um, a metal pipe sticking down through it, uh, sticks down about eight inches um, and with a, with a bottom on it. Um, instead of one of the caps, you know, you, you screw on one of those, a, a reducer so that the water can come out. Right. Um, and then on the top, there's a plate. And then I've got that bolted down to the, to the wagon. And then, and then in that pipe, I can, I can stick, um, the top rail for a, a chain link fence. And then I got those nineties for the chain link fence. So I just made a, a u-shaped structure three of them on that wagon okay. and and then we just put a tarp over top of that so it's almost so it's like lightweight a, and it, it's like a hoop house yep. almost like a hoop house right yeah that seems like a nice easy logical thing to do yeah the wood kept you know kept coming apart like you know that thing would it moves a lot when you drive and and the screws in the wood would fall apart and by the end of the season i'd have a huge mess and this is a lot more lightweight, so I'm I'm pretty satisfied with it. I need to I need to replace some of those plates that I screwed down with through bolts, and that'll that'll make this thing even better. But but yeah, and then that tarp just we throw it on in the morning, um, and then it can come right off. So when we're loading the truck, you can just pull that tarp off and get it out of your way. Oh really? Oh that's kind of slick. And I guess that way too when you're when you leave those wagons parked, you're not having to worry about high winds grabbing onto that, a tarp that's, that's secured to the wagon and blowing it over or something like that. Exactly. Yep. It's just, you know, they kind of, when, when we need it to stay put, if there's a little bit of wind uh, while we're harvesting, you know, they just take the strapping from, you know, the wax boxes come in those bundles and there's that plastic strapping. Yep. <laughs> they just, they just they just use pieces of those to tie it onto those rails temporarily, <laughs> um, and that's you know that's how we keep it on there when when it's a little bit windy. Otherwise, it can just kind of sit on there. Right. And then at the end of the day, or when we're done harvesting, we take it off. And the other thing I like about that is that it allows rain and sunshine and stuff to get on those hay wagons. So you know it's pretty hard for me to hose a piece of equipment like that down. Um, because I don't really want to use river water for that. So, All right, Stephen, with that, we're going to stop here, take a break, get a quick word for, from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Stephen Beltram from Balsam Gardens in Asheville, North Carolina. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company. I used Vermont Compost Sport B as a blocking mix of potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew great transplants with it year after year in soil blocks and in traditional cell flats. We even grew rosemary plants in pots for multiple years, a real testament to the structure of the soil, which can keep the microbes alive over an extended period of time and provide good aeration for the roots. When you put plants in containers, whether it's a five-year-old rosemary in a 20-gallon nursery can or a 24-day-old lettuce seedling in a 10-20 cell tray, you need an optimized matrix of materials that can provide a healthy plant with a restricted media volume. Vermont Compost Potting Soils provide just that consistently, year after year. VermontCompost.com The podcast is also supported by High Mowing Organic Seeds. 
When your livelihood depends on the quality of your seeds, be confident in your investment. When you grow organically, you need to know that your seeds were selected to perform in organic conditions. High Mowing offers professional quality seeds grown by organic farmers for organic farmers. Visit High Mowing online to request a free copy of their 2018 seed catalog, read about the company's mission, and browse over 700 organic varieties including tried-and-true market standards, all-new high-performance hybrids, and beloved heirlooms. Use the code F2FSEEDS when you purchase online or mention the code when you call to receive a 10% discount on purchases of $100 or more. Visit highmowingseeds.com slash farmer to farmer or call 866-735-4454 to get started. And we're back with Stephen Beltram from Balsam Gardens in Asheville, North Carolina. Stephen, uh, what's what's the weather like down there? How are how are things going here late in January in, in Asheville? Well, today we're in the 40s and it's sunny. Uh, yesterday was 55 and sunny. Um, and then dipping down into the 20s at night. Um, so, but we've had, um, for us, we've had some actual cold this year. Um, in early January and late December, we got into the single digits several times. And, um, you know, in, in December, we had maybe eight inches of snow. So we've had a couple snows happen. So past several years, it seems like seems like it hardly ever gets into the teens. So, but around here, you know, the wintertime always is, you always have those warm days up in the 50s. And every now and then you get into the 70s, you know, um, not every year, but. But you're not doing any production at this time of year, are you? We are not. We are not. So, uh, you know, everything we're doing is in the field. So we don't have any high tunnels or anything right now. And uh, and I don't even start my own plants uh, right now. So, so we we've got right now. What I what I do this time of year is, uh, you know, been doing plenty of book work. And then uh, today I'm at the farm loading up trailers of equipment moving uh working on moving out of a farm that we're uh finished leasing now um so just kind of staging the scene for next year now we've talked some already today about the plasticulture setup that you've got on your farm can you describe a little more about how that works from beginning to end i mean what kind of tillage are you doing ahead of the plastic how are you getting it laid and and then kind of what just what happens as we go through the season with it. Yeah, so um depending on on how much uh how big our cover crop is um or or if there's a cover crop at all. Usually I have a good cover crop in the winter, but uh some of our fields this year I I seeded too late and then it got so cold that um that they're open. Um so anyway, we come in in a case like that, we'll come in with a disc harrow. Um if I've got a lot of residue, that I'm, I need to deal with, uh, then I'll mow it down and I'll run a, you know, a turning plow through there, like a bottom plow. Um, I have a, I have a four bottom plow that can, can, uh, can do that. And then, um, and then I usually don't have to, our fields are light enough and they're, they're all kind of sandy loam, uh, that in most of our fields, I don't have to use a rotavator before I lay plastic. I can get by with just the just the disc harrow. So I've got a nine foot, uh, three point hitch disc harrow, uh, a finishing type harrow. Uh, I don't have a offset harrow at all. Um, and that can usually get, 
get things broken up and smooth enough to, to run that better through. Um, so then after, after I disc harrow, I usually drive through and lay out my bed. Um, so most of our beds are, well, we, most of our pattern, I'm thinking about standardizing the pattern, but we've been running on two patterns. One pattern is seven beds per drive row. And then, uh, another pattern we use is nine beds per drive throw drive row. And those are crop specific. Um, so crops that are taller, um, like tomatoes, trellis crops, or things like squash that are really have a lot of foliage. We'll do seven, um, because of the mechanics of how far our sprayer can get in there. And then something like kale or cabbage, we've been doing on nine because um, that sprayer can blast all the way to the middle of the, you know, four and a half beds or whatever. Right. Um, and so I lay off the beds by driving the tractor back and forth. And the reason I do that is because then I have a, um, a, a fertilizer applicator. Um, it was an old machine made by Pocket, but like it was made for gypsum. A friend of mine picked it up in southern Georgia for me, really cheap. And and then, so it's it's twelve feet wide. So centered on the back of the tractor, it covers a bed and then half of a bed on either side. And then I, we put these plates on the bottom so that it's it's just dropping the fertilizer um into the beds and not into the into the tire tracks um and so that's the reason why we lay them out first is so that i can i can accomplish accomplish that um because it has to it's only doing a half bed on either side so you do so you have to come back you skip a skip a bed and then come back and drive the other way yeah so yeah so that's what we do next and then then we come through and we run the better. Um, and I just have one of those little, um, you know, red ones. I think they're made by Nolt. Um, so it's not a real tall bed. I, I originally bought that because, well, cause they're cheap for, for getting the bed layer and they, they could run on a smaller tractor. Um, at this point, I think I'd like to have a one that makes a taller bed, but, but I don't. So, so that lays the plastic out. Um, puts the drip tape underneath it, lays the plastic and buries both ends. Now you've got your, your plastic beds out there. And then we just use, um, blue lay flat and, uh, and we use some of that black poly line for headers and, and, um, we just go through and hook it all up and we can water, you know, quite a bit at once with, with a system like that. Um, so then we're pumping out of the river. So, um, so we've got an irrigation rig. Well, I've got a couple of them, and they're on <clears throat> they're on trailers, so they're mobile. And we just back it up to where we need it to be in the river, drop a pipe in, and then on those irrigation rigs, on all them, we you know the, there's a pump, obviously, um, and then the sand media filters. Um, one of them has a a chlorinator on it because uh, of the the river there we kept failing water tests and then um and then they've all got uh they've all got those mazzy mazzy injectors so we can we can pump whatever we want into there so that if you need uh, some extra fertility 
during the year you can run? What kinds of things are you running through there? I'd say, you know, I don't do a lot of fertigation. Most of our fertility is provided through that pre-plant application of granular stuff. Um, but the thing that I use really consistently is, um, is uh, potassium uh, sulfate or sulfate of potash, however you say it. Um, I use that in my tomatoes because they just need, they need so much potassium. So, you know, when we're growing tomatoes, we're putting in, once they start to fruit, I'm putting in a bag of that 0052 to the acre per week. Um, but I don't do a lot with like fish emulsion or um, I don't do much with, you know, Chilean nitrate or any, or any of that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I can, but I don't, I don't do much of that. So that's, that's, I'd say that potassium sulfate is the main thing that we regularly use. And it's really only on tomatoes. And then once you've got that all set up, then... So now you've got the you got the plastic laid, the drips underneath, you've got your irrigation setup working. How are you actually getting the plant into the plastic? So we're using the um you know, the green uh the green water wheel. What's it? The rain flow, uh, right? The rain flow. Yeah. Yep, we use a rain flow water wheel and um and we put them in that way. So um except for you know, we transplant Everything except for um, cucurbits. So when we're doing cucurbits, I just take the I just take the wheel off of the water wheel and the axle, and I stick it through the three point hitch in the tractor, you know, and put like a hose clamp on either end, and and I can poke holes that way, and then we come through and direct feed the cucurbits. Um, but yeah, otherwise we're transplanting with that water wheel. Where are you growing your transplants? So we we um we buy them all, or you know we have someone contract grow them okay. for us. I guess is a better way of saying it because we have to we have to pre order them. Um, so there's a company called Banner Greenhouses uh, that well, they're I guess they're about 45 minutes east of us, and um, they've got a large greenhouse operation. And primarily, what they they do and have done is is like you know they grow like flowers in pots that end up at Lowe's and, and things for, you know, homeowners. But they started several years ago um, doing organic transplants. And so, so that's worked out well for us. We just, we tell them what we want and when we want it. And then they deliver them to the field and we, we plant them. I mean, that's a whole nother management headache that you're not having to deal with. That's right. And, and a whole nother infrastructure. Right. Um, set of infrastructure that we don't have. Now, once you get those crops out in the field, are you covering with, with row cover or with, uh, with clear plastic or anything like that for, for crop protection or for moving things along more quickly? No. Uh, well, you know, we've got one field where there's, there's um, enough crows over there that I do cover some things sometimes just to keep the crows off till the plants are established. Interesting. Um, but I'm not, yeah, <laughs> I'm not doing much with um, with any sort of cover for season extension. We just, um, maybe I don't try to start quite as early as I used to on certain things. Uh, I don't start transplanting anything till April 1st. And I wait till, you know, after Mother's Day to plant things that are going to, that would die from frost. So instead of covering stuff, we just work around the season. And then what are you doing for weed control? on the edge because 
one of the things that I really hated about growing on plastic, and, and I think this was a personal problem because I know that people do it successfully, but man, getting the weed control right on the edges of the plastic is not as easy as you might think. It is not as easy as you might think. Um, the, the best thing that I've got right now is, um, is a, it's a three point hitch cultivator that goes on, on the back of the tractor. And, um, I have two of them, but the one that we've upgraded to has gauge wheels and it just has the, you know, it has sweeps on it, you know, coming down off of a toolbar. Um, a friend of mine put it together for me just for this purpose. And it's got, and it's, so it's got gauge wheels with the parallelogram and that's an improvement over just when I had the sweep on a toolbar on the three point hitch, because it, I don't have to worry about the undulations in the field, either going too deep or, or not deep enough. And we just drive that thing through there, um, until the crops are too tall to be able to do it. And if, if you get in there at the right time, um, and you go the right speed, it can kind of throw some dirt up on the edges a little bit and just bury the little weeds. Otherwise, well, and even with that system, you know, once the crops get big enough, we end up with weeds in, in the middles um, without question. Um, and where, where it really gets challenging is in staked crops like tomatoes. And, you know, they're in there for so long um, that managing those weeds in between there, you know, what I end up doing a lot is just, once the weeds get too annoying and hopefully before they go to seed, um, I rent one of those walk behind, you know, brush mowers and we can go through and mow them down. I'm thinking this year about planting maybe some rye grass or something in between there so that, uh, to out compete with the weeds. So we don't have as much, as much of a mess. Um, but just getting in there and mowing it really helps a lot. And, uh, yeah, we we used to do it with weed whackers, but we figured out this walk behind brush mowers are way better. And then something like lettuce. I mean, if you just sometimes we miss a cultivation and we still get a lettuce crop. So it, it's such a short crop in there that it just doesn't really matter. Right. And then the other thing that I hated about growing on plastic was dealing with it after the crop was done. Yeah. Yep. So we have, um, you know, if it's something like lettuce. You can just go down through and actually you can just pull on the drip tape that's centered in the middle and rip it in the middle and pull the plastic up. If there's a lot of weeds, then um, you really need to have a bed lifter. So we have a, um, one of those rainflow bed lifters too. And, and you drive it through, it's got a coulter in the middle, it splits it down the middle and then it, it loosens the plastic on, on both sides and our crew can pick it up pretty quick. Uh, so, you know, it's a lot of waste, it's a lot of trash, but it's not, it's not hard to deal with. Where are you disposing of the plastic from the fields? So we just have a, you know, local hauling company come and bring us those roll off dumpsters and we, we just put them in there. Um, and then they haul it to the landfill. So, you know, I, well, I hauled some the other day in my box truck and I shouldn't have done that because I got stuck at the dump and they had to drag me around. But. <laughs> 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 I, I like to call that stupid farmer tricks. Yeah, exactly. 
first they had to drag me back to where I needed to dump it. And then they had to drag me back out. So. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. And when you do that, it's like you look and go at the price of the roll off would have been just, uh, well, you're not coming out ahead. That's for sure. So are you using different kinds or different colors of plastic for different crops? We're not really using different colors for different crops, but we are using different colors seasonally. So uh, when we start laying plastic in March, it's all black. And then um, for stuff that we're transplanting in, you know, June or later, we switch to white. But, you know, in the spring, everything goes on black. And then in the fall, everything goes on white. You know, they did some research, though. You know, I know a lot of people doing tomatoes on white late plantings and stuff, but even later plantings on tomatoes, the research I've seen, if you can get them, if you can get them uh, established, it seems like maybe black all the time is better. But anyway. Well, so you mentioned tomatoes and, and that seems like a big crop for you guys. Yeah, we grow, we, it's not our biggest crop, but I really like to grow tomatoes. Um, and we do grow, you know, several acres of them. And what kind of a trellising system are you using for the tomatoes? We use what I guess is called the Florida weave. So wooden stick, um, two plant stick, two plant stick. And then you just, you come back and loop it around, um, from both sides. And, uh, yeah. And we grow, we grow determinants and indeterminates and, um, this year I'm buying new sticks for the indeterminates because Last year, I tried putting two of the small sticks together, and they kept breaking and falling over. So I'm going to buy some big, like bean sticks for those. And you said that you're actually succession cropping those field tomatoes. Yep. Oftentimes we do. Um, I think this coming year we're just going to put in one. But around here, you can, you know, the people who really specialize in tomatoes, they do two or three crops, and um, we can plant, um, you know, in May. And then we can plant, we can plant like once a month until, you know, July or something around here. This year, I think I won't. I think I'll just put in one just because um, what can happen is the way our season goes, you can end up just building and building and building in your harvest Um, because, you know, you've got the same stuff in the fall as you had in the spring, plus all the fruit crops. So I think we're just going to do that one succession and fill in because I'm trying to get as even labor as I can through the season. Right. So that you're not having to hire in surges. Exactly. Yeah. Cause that, that's something that happens to us. Um, and it, it often turns into a disaster. So tell me about your labor situation. Where are you guys pulling employees from? Okay. So our farm workers are all, um, local year round residents. Um, they all live, about 30, 40 minutes to the east, kind of down off the mountains into the foothills. Um, so we're hiring uh, through word of mouth. Um, it's all immigrant, Spanish-speaking population, but it's um, all year-round residents. Um, so we don't do any sort of labor contractors or anything like that at this point. Um, it's all W-2, you know, on our staff. And, um, and it's a seasonal job. So we'll have you know, in April, we have a few people come on and help start transplanting and stuff. And then once we start harvesting in, in mid-May, you know, we need, we need 10 plus people. And, um, 
like I said, we're trying to manage those surges so that we don't, you know, like last year we ended up for a few weeks when we had too much squash all at once. We had like 26 people and I'd rather have more like 10 people just, you know, for six months straight. Um, and, uh, and it's worked out pretty well for us so far. We get a lot of repeat people every year and hopefully that'll, that'll continue. Cause once your crew's tra- trained and they know what to do and they know you and you both trust each other, things can, can go pretty smoothly. Yeah. I mean, having returning staff, is such a huge thing. It really is. Yeah. I wish we could do year round employment, you know, that would, that would make the management so much easier of personnel if you could do year-round employment, but I haven't figured that out. Yeah, that's a whole business structure question. You know, how, what what are you doing? What are you selling? And how are you growing it? Uh, you know, all has to fit into that in a in a seasonal climate. So now you guys are in a really highly visible location. I I, I know one of the pictures that I saw on Instagram. It looks like there's a strip mall across the street from your from your fields, and and I. Th- and I think about, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the, just the, the, oh, what's the right neutral term about this? The contentiousness over immigration right now. Do you guys get any pushback from having Hispanics working in the field? Is that something where people look and go, Ooh, that must, that must be a bunch of illegals. That must be a bunch of bad hombres or, or whatever. I mean. Yeah. You know, I've never had any of that to my face. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much people are really thinking that, um, for one thing it's, you know, we're in agriculture and I think people just sort of, there's a big tomato industry around here. You know, people are kind of used to seeing, um, you know, Latinos and stuff picking tomatoes. So I think they kind of expect it in agriculture. But then the other thing is just that, I mean, North Carolina really has attracted a lot of immigrants over the past, you know, 15, 20 years. So. I don't know. You got the people out there that might think that, but I think most people, I think most people are, are, um, I don't know how to put it. Uh, most people are accepting. I don't, I don't know what to say there. Yeah. <laughs> most people aren't getting up in arms about it. You know, most people. Yeah, I haven't exactly. And you know, in Asheville is Asheville's, uh, we're in the South. There's no question, but, especially in the city, it's a pretty unique um, demographic that lives in Asheville. You know, it's a pretty progressive uh, type city. So people are less likely to worry about ethnicity in that way. I guess that's the right way of putting that. Right. Working with a Hispanic crew, are you a Spanish speaker? Is that something that you've picked up over the years or that you came with that skill? I am not a Spanish speaker. Um, and that is, that's one of the biggest skills I have lacking as a grower at this point. Um, but we have enough people on the crew that speak really, really English well. Um, you know, and we have some leadership on the crew that is good at English that, um, that everything can get translated and, um, and it works out, you know, like I said, you know, it's, uh, our population is, that we're hiring is, um, is stationary, you know, stable, long-time residents, homeowners, whatever. So a lot of them do speak, you know, English perfectly, or at least quite a bit. Um, and we just end up with, 
you know, a handful of people now and then that don't speak any English. And then the translating just goes through the people who do. Is your family involved in the farming operation? My family is less involved at this point than uh, they were when we lived on the farm. Um, we don't live on any of the farms at this point. So, but, you know, certainly, certainly the kids come to the farm and, and play and stuff like that. And, um, you know, my children are, are small, they're three and six. Um, so they're not really, you know, out there, they're not really out there bunching kale all day or anything. Um, my wife, Becca does the payroll and, um, and handles, you know, a lot of the books and, and helps make the big decisions and, and things like that. So, um, so yeah, the family's involved in that way, but I'm certainly the one that goes to the farm every morning and runs the day-to-day operation. All right, with that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. First, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round, as well as perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast, is brought to you by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need. With PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, the flail mower, the power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheeled farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. So, Stephen, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Well, what's my favorite tool on the farm? Um, I guess I'm like everybody. I like new things. Uh, I don't have it yet, but I'm shopping for a flail mower right now. So I'm hoping that's going to be my new, <laughs> my new favorite tool. I like it. Nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Now that we're getting into a lot more intensive cover crop management, I hope that, that that's going to, that's going to be great. So what's your favorite crop to grow? My favorite crop to grow is probably tomatoes. Maybe, maybe kale. I like to grow kale a lot too, but, um, I, I think I like tomatoes because they're so difficult. So, and they're the, they're the crop that keeps, you know, they oftentimes really whack me in the face, but I keep coming back. So I must really like it. You know, I meant to ask earlier, um, how you guys are harvesting the tomatoes because, you know, when you're selling direct to consumers, right, you're picking vine ripe tomatoes, stuff that's, that's ready to eat. But, but once you start again, backing up that distribution chain, that really changes. That really changes. Yeah. So, so we, our tomatoes, um, we try to pick them, you know, at what we call breaker stage. Um, and you know, they don't really, the fruits don't really get from my understanding, any more sugar into them after that breaker stage. So, so we're, we're not picking them green. Um, but we're not picking them fully ripe either because, because we need that ripening time, um, in the box, uh, in order, so, you know, they can't be soft when they get to the retail level. So, um, so that's what we do. We try to pick them at breaker and the, and we pick them into buckets, um, and we take them back to our hay wagon where we have to sort and grade them. Um, cause they have to be, 
They have to be sorted. The box has to all be the same size and the same color in a box. So that's how we do that. And then we have a new customer coming online this year um, for whom they're, they have a really, they're really big in the tomato business. They mostly sell conventional tomatoes. I think we'll probably be one of their only local organic growers. Um, and we're going to pick them into RPCs for them. And then they have mechanized sorting grading equipment. So, um, so that's how that'll work for that customer. Wow. That'll be an interesting change for you guys. That'll be really interesting. Yeah. I'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, but you know, they've got, we've, we spend a lot of time sorting and grading these things. It's really very difficult to get, you know, a four by five box that's all the same color, um, takes quite a bit of time, but you know, they've got, they've got these machines with cameras and, and all that kind of stuff that'll do it. So, and we're going to do great tomatoes for them too, because I really, I don't know how to wash those and sort those by hand. That right. I think would be impossible. Be a little too much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And finally, Stephen, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Uh, probably to get a four wheel tractor sooner, you know, um, to not worry so much about taking on payments for equipment and to focus on, on mechanizing as many things as you can. I think that's what I would tell myself. Steven, thank you so much for being part of the farmer to farmer podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again, this is episode 156 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Beltram. That's B-E-L-T-R-A-M. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, providing the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central Stair, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support this show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world. You can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.